Please uh, open your Bibles now to the book of Colossians. Today we're in chapter 1 and we are devoting our time together over the Christmas season to recognizing the person of Jesus Christ um, because there's just so much ignorance about who he is. There are always two basic questions that are formed in the mind about the event that Christmas declares. The first question is, how did the Son of God come to earth? The second question is, why did the Son of God come to earth? The event, the claim of Christmas, is the Son of God, a divine person, came to earth. Uh, The first question is, how did he come to the earth? And the answer of the Christian faith throughout the ages is in the incarnation. God became physical. The second question, why did the Son of God come to earth? Why did he become physical? The answer is reconciliation. He came, incarnation. Why he came, reconciliation. So today in our text, we'll talk something about uh, the reconciliation Christ accomplished in coming to earth. So today our reading will be verses 15, and I think we'll just go on and read through um, verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach through him or before him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly a a light unto our path, a lamp for our feet. We thank you that uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And we pray today that by your spirit you would give us eyes to see who Jesus is, why he came, what he accomplished, and why we need it so desperately. And now, Father, would you be pleased now to speak through your servant, and this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, some of the hymnody around Christmas time is great. We sang recently, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and it puts it all pretty well together. Charles Wesley Uh, who wrote it, saw in the Christmas story the angels sing uh, the reason the Son of God came to earth is for peace. 
properly translated, what they sang was peace on earth toward those upon whom God's grace and favor rest. That's the reason why Charles Wesley put it so beautifully. He said, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. That's why he came. That's really the purpose behind Christ, uh, Christmas. God and sinners reconcile. Why did he become physical? Well, in verse 22 of the text we just read, he became physical, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. There was a problem. We were in an unreconciled relationship with our maker, and the reason Jesus Christ came and became physical was to reconcile us. But before we move on to the text, I have to mention to you that that is the, not the normal way you're going to hear, at least in public places, the meaning of Christmas explained. Ordinarily, Christmas is seen as meaning, that is whether you're watching TV shows about it, or you're, you're reading store ads and so on, or reading online, that if we work really hard together, we can make the world a better place. That's what people think Christmas is all about. If we really get together, we can make the world a better place. You remember that song that was sung at Live Aid concert in 1985? We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. That's what most people think is the meaning of Christmas. After Live Aid, that concert in 1985, Bob Dylan, who was one of the uh, rock stars singing on the video, said to the press he was very uncomfortable singing a song like that. Somebody said to Bob Dylan, why were you so uncomfortable? And he said, I, I'll tell you why I'm so uncomfortable. Because man cannot save himself. So we look today to Bob Dylan for the true meaning of Christmas because he got it right. The Bible says Jesus Christ came because we cannot save ourselves. There's a problem. He had to do something about it. The way Christmas is expounded in public anymore is that Christmas means if we work hard, we can save ourselves. But Bob Dylan was right. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners need to be reconciled. And so that is a portion of what our text this morning addresses, but it says so much more than that. Now just understand a little bit about the background of the letter to the Colossians because it will make more sense. We haven't gotten there yet in our Acts journey, but we know that there was a Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy had to do with angels. It had to do with angels and angel worship. That was a big thing, and you know, it's pretty popular in some quarters today. But their view of reality, the false teachers who came in after Paul, they were always cowards. They never debated with Paul. They wait, waited until he left. They came in and they began their teaching. And their teaching was that God, it was proto-Gnosticism, that is uh, the idea of knowledge being everything. And so the proto-Gnosticism of the Colossian heresy is this, 
God is too holy to come in contact with the evil of material things. It was sort of Neoplatonism is what it was. God is so other, God is so holy, he will not contaminate himself by becoming physical. Therefore, Jesus Christ is not really God. He's an emanation from the divine being on the order of other divine beings like angels. And there's like a string of them from heaven to earth. And Jesus is one of the higher ones, but he's not the one. He's not God himself. He's simply like an angelic creature, uh, an emanation of the divine being. And so, uh, Paul is emphatic that Christ is not one of a range of beings between God and humanity, even if he be held to a higher status than any other. He is supreme. He is preeminent. And this is a hymn, another hymn. When we looked at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, that was an early Christian hymn. This text is an early Christian hymn. By the way, just in passing, uh, there are some Presbyterians called the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, also known as the Covenanters, who believe in singing psalms exclusively. We should not sing any other music we, we shouldn't even sing the hymns of the faith or certainly not any praise songs. Uh, the only songs that should be happening during the worship service are the Psalms, uh, the five book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And the question I always pose to them is, then why did Paul include hymns in his letters? These are hymns. Obviously, somebody wrote them in the first century. And don't tell me we can't sing them or God won't like it. And so I've always had problems with that point of view. They're good people otherwise. I love them and agree with much of what they say, but the exclusive psalmody is wrong. This text itself is an early Christian hymn. So let's see what the hymn says as we get into it. The subject of the hymn is the Son, into whose kingdom we have been translated by faith. The Father has uh, given us and taken us from the grip of the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. First, let's look at Christ and creation. The son is the image of the invisible God. God is beyond human vision, being in light unapproachable. No one has ever seen him Indeed, it's not possible to look on him and live according to Exodus 33, verse 20. It is Jesus Christ, the Son, who makes him known. He is the exact representation of God and the visible representation of God. The invisible God is made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus said to Philip in John's Gospel, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. He makes God known in human history on our own level. This entails his existence, his pre-existence, his being before all things, and so he transcends his life on earth. When Mark writes about Jesus, he traces it back to the baptism. When Matthew and Luke write about Jesus, they go back to his conception and trace his lineage to David and to Abraham, and Luke goes all the way back to Adam. 
But John, in his gospel, pushes it back even further before the creation, for he is the creator himself. The fact that Christ is the true representation of God establishes right away his supremacy over any of the angelic uh, caste of beings. Uh, the Bible is consistent about the pre-existence of Christ. He is eternal. And also in this text, there is something of a reference to Adam insofar as that Adam was created in the image of God, which Paul identifies here as Christ. That of itself can hardly preclude preexistence. Indeed, in asserting Christ's priority to Adam, it demands it. The remarkable conclusion that follows is that if this passage is an early Christian hymn used in worship, um, it was teaching was widely and possibly universally believed very early in the life of the church, together with the prologue to John's gospel uh, and also Hebrews chapter uh, 1 and 2. This passage reflects a belief present in the church from the early start. Paul was giving voice and clarity to what is already believed. Christ is the preexistent one. He's eternal. He is eternal beyond time and space. Uh, the universe itself is a creation. It is a creature, as it were. Time itself is a creation, a creature, as it were. But Christ himself transcends all of that because he's the second person of the Godhead. He is the agent of creation. I'm getting ahead of myself. He's the agent of creation. We'll talk about that now. Christ is the Lord of creation. The firstborn he is called here in Israel had priority over all the other offspring. He inherited a double portion of the father's estate. That's why the elder brother and the prodigal son got so ticked off about his brother taking his inheritance and leaving. Why? Because it affected his inheritance. That's why he was so angry. Uh, Paul is saying that Christ the Son is heir to the entire creation. It is his inheritance he owns creation. It is not that he is a chief part of creation, but rather uh, he is Lord and ruler of the universe, and it is his by absolute right. Christ is the creator. The aorist tense is used here, and it refers to completed action. The universe was brought into existence at a particular point of time or at a particular point in eternity. Its creation is due to the Son. Christ created all things, and the all things in view is comprehensive. It includes that which is material, that which is non-material, visible, invisible. It corresponds in general to things on the earth as well as things in heaven. In short, both those elements that we can observe and see, feel and touch and measure, and those things that are not visible were all brought into being by Christ. He spoke them into existence. He brought them into being because he has the power of being within himself. He is, um, that's part of the aseity or aseity of God. That God in himself uh, is eternal and immutable. 
And so Paul goes on to list four categories of angels here. He refers to uh, probably some form of hierarchy. Uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are all angelic beings. We know uh, that uh, in the book of Daniel, angels were at work behind the scenes of world history and grappling with earthly powers. They are evidently, angelic hosts, very powerful. The angel of the Lord slaughtered 185,000 troops in one go in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 6. They travel at immense speed and can traverse the boundaries of the spiritual as well as the material. However, they're merely creatures brought into existence by Christ. He is to be worshipped. They are never to be worshipped. All things were created in him in living, dynamic relation to him, through him as the agent of creation, and for him as the goal of creation. The entire universe exists for the sake of Jesus Christ. The goal toward which it is heading is in conformity to him. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, all things will be under the headship of Christ for all of eternity. Now think about that for a moment. This church at Colossae that was a bunch of new believers and they didn't know what to believe. They didn't understand things. And so when somebody came along after Paul claiming probably connection with Paul and they began to talk about all these angelic emanations and beings coming forth and that in our worship we're to worship them, they probably said, well okay, you know, I, I don't know, teach me something. And so they were easily influenced. But how does Paul correct that? Paul doesn't correct it by teaching us in the book of Colossians every heretical thought that ever walked across the city. No, he takes the truth. I used to know a person that worked at a bank. They were a bank teller. And somehow we got into a conversation. It was in seminary, uh, and it was one of my classmates, and he had been a bank teller. And I asked him the question, I said, how do you guys learn to spot and identify counterfeit money. And I said, do you take every example of a counterfeit bill that's ever been made that you have on record and you study each one in order to recognize one if it happens to come your way? And he said, no. He said, no, that's not how we do it at all. I said, well, how do you do it? He says, we take real money <laughs> and we study it in detail to where we know it like the back of our hand and the moment anything comes that's out of uh, alignment with real money we recognize it immediately as counterfeit that's what paul is doing he's teaching them who jesus is the real jesus so that they can be grounded in the faith in order to spot and identify and not be deceived by all of this false teaching going on Thus, the importance of sound theological foundation and doctrine. So, let's look at Christ and providence in verse 17. In line with the teaching of Hebrews 1, Paul asserts that all things are sustained by Jesus Christ. He is the one who provides order in the universe. Why does anything hold together and why does not everything fall apart? 
Second law of thermodynamics says it is falling apart. Look around at people you know, they're falling apart. Look at yourself, maybe you're falling apart. But the only reason there is any order in the universe at all is at this very moment and all, even during his life on earth, Christ himself sustained the universe. He is the Lord of providence, of the ongoing government of the cosmos. It is clear that all things here in verse 17 can hardly be less comprehensive than the reference to all things in verse 16. So Christ governs all he has created, material and spiritual, directing them to the goal which he has for them. What Christ has created, he maintains in permanent order, stability, and productivity. Physics has shown the universe is stat not static, but dynamic. It is Christ that empowers the creation in this regard. That's how big Christ is. Do you see that? That's what the Bible teaches us about the glory of Christ. C.S. Lewis said that there can be no neutral territory in the universe. The Dutch theologian and former Prime Minister Abraham Kuyper famously declared there's not a square inch in the whole domain of, the, uh, of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. All things are His. Denial of this elemental truth constitutes rebellion against the living God. To refuse to believe what is being taught today from Colossians chapter 1 is you have decided to write your own story. You have decided to interpret reality through your own eyes. But the reality of the truth of Christianity is Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all that is. All things are his. And so, it follows that Christian education, properly understood, does not consist in simply tacking on some teaching from the Bible to a consideration of this subject and from an apparently neutral perspective. It doesn't make education Christian to count apples, I mean angels, rather than apples. Christian education is rooted in the truth of what Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. One of the Dutch theologians that I read in seminary was a guy named uh, Duyeverd. And uh, he had a hard enough name to say, much less spell. But he was a brilliant man. But he talked about sphere sovereignty. And what he meant by that was, Every dimension of our existence belongs to Christ. So you do not separate out like psychology and religion and history and economics. All of it, all truth, all truth is God's truth. All truth is Christ's truth. Which is why, well I won't get into that, it would be a special category. But anyway. The only education that deserves the name of Christian approaches each and every knowledge, area of knowledge from the premise that Christ is the one who has authority over it and that all truth, all of it, is his. Now let's move on. to We could talk like forever on each one of these points, 
but we do eventually have to go home. Christ and the church. The creator of the world is the head of the church. He himself and no other. And this is an, the effective point due to the emphasis of the personal pronoun. In writing of Christ as the head of the church, Paul has two related images in mind. First, as head, Christ has authority over the church. He governs it. It is his church. He protects it against the attack of the evil one so that the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. The book of Revelation makes clear while also stating in no uncertain terms that he can and does act in judgment over the church. Look at the letters to the seven churches. The second place, Christ is the source of the church's life. The head animates the whole body, directing it in every way. So too, Christ imparts life and power to the church by the Holy Spirit. We are in an organic, living connection to Christ. Just as the branch is attached to the vine, Christ is the one who animates us, who enlivens us. It is a living, dynamic, vital relationship. The church is a living organism in relation to Christ as close as we could possibly imagine. The church is not an ecclesiastical club existing for the comfort of its privileged members. Christ is the head of the church as the one who rose from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, the risen Christ, is the head of the church. Upon his resurrection, having completed his work of redemption and reconciliation, this is because he is the one who is incarnate, who has added human nature and lived among us as one of us. It was in the flesh that he died and in the flesh that he was resurrected. That's why theologians say the dust of the earth is now on the throne of the universe. Our human flesh is now at the right hand of the Father in the person of Christ. That's about as redeemed as you're going to get. This, this indicates graphically that salvation is a renewal of creation, for humanity is part of creation. Salvation goes beyond the forgiveness of sins and the crediting of righteousness to our account and everlasting life. Although that's central and wonderful and glorious, salvation reaches out to a vast scenario in encompassing the whole universe renewed in righteousness. This is where some, so many have such a truncated view of what salvation is. Salvation is cosmic. It will not be over until there are new heavens and a new earth and everything is renewed by Christ. Fourth point, Christ and God. The incarnate Christ is the complete and perfect embodiment of God. In him, the full and undiluted presence of God is to be found. F.F. F. Bruce comments that the totality of divine essence and power is resident in Christ so that he is one, all-sufficient intermediary between God and the world of humanity. We referred earlier to Jesus' statement to Philip, he who has encountered Jesus Christ has encountered God, for he is, in his inmost being, God himself. This is the point at which God is reconciled to the human race, overcoming the estrangement due to human sin. 
At the point of his conception, God the Son took into union humanity. From the moment, there was no possible reversal. Human nature was now permanently united to the eternal Son of God, the Son of the Father. This is so momentous, it is because of Jesus' personal identity as Son. The full deity of the Son is stated with the recognition that this is fully compatible with the oneness of God. There is a oneness of God in essence and being. There is a threeness of God that is in centers of personal consciousness or persons. Therefore, there is the Trinity, the tri-unity of God. And so, this is not peculiar to this particular letter, Paul's characteristic name for Jesus is Lord. We mentioned that last Sunday. Used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament, the, the Greek translation. The word Lord is called the tetragrammaton. That is four letters. You'll see it written Y-H-W-H, all in capital letters. That's the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. In applying it to Jesus Christ, not on an occasional, occasional or casual basis, but pervasively, Paul shows that he regards Jesus as having the status of God fully and without the slightest abridgment. This is particularly clear in what we looked at last week in Philippians 2. But the church used it so unselfconsciously that it's clear from the earliest days the church worshiped Christ and acknowledged him to be the Lord. And finally, Christ in the future. Now, I, w I do want to say a little bit more about reconciliation uh, before I get to Christ in the future because that's part of it. But if you look in the text at verse 21 and you, well, let's go to verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, which we were not, blameless, which we were not, and above reproach, which we were not. Isn't it amazing that the reconciliation he has accomplished has completely changed our status from one of alienation and estrangement and hostility and resentment? There is in the heart of every fallen person who has not been regenerated by God, and even those who are regenerated still have the remnants of it in our heart of resenting God. We resent him because we don't like the way our lives are going. And since he's in control, we harbor resentment. We hang on to anger and hostility toward God. I, I see people often who are just raging, raging in life. Why are they so angry? Why are they raging? Who are they raging against? Well, they would say, I'm raging against my boss. I'm raging against the past election. I didn't like the outcome of that. Or I'm enraged about uh, traffic. Or I'm enraged about the weather. Or I'm enraged about whatever. But who's in control of the entire universe? Who's in control? Are we? No. Who is? Jesus. There are a lot of Christ haters. 
lot of Christ haters. But Christ came, he took our blemishes, he took our alienation, he took our hostility upon himself on the cross and returned to us the very gifts that I just read to you. We are now holy, blameless, and without reproach before him. Before him, we are now turned from being enemies of God to being worshipers of God through Christ. The reconciliation, however, isn't just individual souls. The reconciliation will embrace the entire universe. The all things that are reconciled can hardly be other than the all things Christ created and the all things he now governs. A renewed, revitalized, and redeemed cosmos is in view. Everywhere sin. Don't you remember Paul writing in Romans chapter 8? Speaks about creation itself groaning, waiting for the revelation of the adopted sons of men. Creation itself, in every point, is under the curse. It is groaning under the curse. But Christ will return and revitalize, renew. And, uh, you know, some people have argued that, especially from 1 Peter and 2 Peter, where it talks about the earth being consumed with uh, fire and the elements of it consumed. See that what's going to happen at the end is the whole earth will burn up. Thus, everything ever done on earth will have no resonance. It'll burn up too. I don't see that. I see God as a redeeming God. He always fixes that which is broken. People as well as creation itself. And what we do in this life matters. What we do matters. Uh, it's not all going to burn up. That which is dross is going to burn up. That which is done from selfish motives is going to burn up. But Christ will renew it. It will be glorious beyond words. The new creation uh, that comes down from heaven, as it were, the people of God, both under the old and new covenant. And so the, the mention of reconciliation entails the fact that disruption and enmity had entered creation, human sin had a devastating effect on the human race, it has a dire effect on the creation as well, and this has to be our hope. This has to be our hope. You know, we get so caught up in other matters uh, in this world that we lose hope because certain things appear to us to be devastating and we can't see how it's only going to be doom and gloom uh, forever but the great hope of the Christian is not rooted in anything man can do it's rooted in what Christ has already accomplished and will affect as he renews the cosmos so while I'm not overly optimistic about the church transforming the culture. I have some reason to have hope that we can have impact that is lasting on the culture. Salvation is the deliverance of humanity. But Christ accomplished this at the cross. The expression, the blood of his cross, refers to his life laid down in death as a sacrifice. And from Christ's atoning death, and the resurrection and the ascension that followed emerges a new creation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
He's already entered into it in the already sense. But the not yet is still to come. A heaven and earth in which righteousness will dwell. There at the, you know, the reason why we're so unhappy with most of what's going on in the world is this world is filled with unrighteousness and injustice. And people lamenting that, I get it. I feel it. I see it. But one day, righteousness will dwell. There at the cross, Christ dealt with human sin, and in doing so, with the effect it had on material and spiritual world as well. Paul means that neither, neither that each and every person will be saved, nor that the fallen angels will be delivered. He doesn't address those matters. He's not talking about aggregations of individuals or some kind of mathematical or statistical balance of categories between belief and unbelief. Rather, he's painting with broad strokes the consequences of what Christ, the everlasting Son of the Father, has done to establish his kingdom into which we have been transferred, a kingdom that will stand and grow forever in a glorious and renewed cosmos. Our Jesus is too small. Our Christ is too tiny. Paul is opening us up today to see who it is that became a baby in Bethlehem's manger. The one who spoke the universe into existence came to die to resurrect, to ascend, and he's coming back. One of my favorite stanzas of a hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, is this one. Crown Him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime, all hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Let us bow in awe and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ who created all things has redeemed all things will return and renew all things let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your word it is truth it is truth that penetrates and exposes and shatters the lies around us so much lying from so many quarters, inspired by the father of lies, the devil himself. And we thank you that we can open your word and truth, recognized by those of us whose eyes have been opened, who are indwelt by your spirit. Once we see it, we can't unsee it. Because it's the truth. It's real. And the only thing that is. And I pray we would live our lives recognizing that our lives here are temporary, but what we do with Christ has eternal implications. And I pray for those who do not yet know Him that they would reach out by your Spirit and embrace Him as Savior and Lord. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.